session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live for the show, so we're not taking any calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, before I get into the books of the week, uh, thank you to the Iranian student group at UCLA, ISG, just completed a panel with them, along with psychiatrist Dr. Nasreen Bashiri, uh, talking about mental health. And that just ended about an hour ago. Um, so it was very nice to be part of that. I think if you go to their social media, they said they're uploading it to their YouTube page in case you missed it, the Iranian student group at UCLA. So a uh, big thank you to them for inviting me and for having an event where we can further the discussion on mental health. Uh, and uh, hopefully reduce that stigma even further, especially in the Iranian community. Let's get to the books of the week. For this week, uh, the book I'll be reading is called Why Vegan by Peter Singer. Why Vegan Eating Ethically by Peter Singer. And um, I ordered this book about three months ago. Um and it just came out this week, so I just received it a few days ago. And so I read a book by Peter Saver, The Life You Can Save, which I really enjoyed. And then I shared on the show how I came across, while reading a book called Disability Visibility, some of his work that uh, appears to minimize the value of lives of individuals with disabilities. Now, he's saying it in a different way, but um, I didn't like what I saw. And so I had some mixed feelings about even reading this book after that, but although I might not agree with everything Peter Singer says, uh, I, I do want to see his thoughts on eating ethically. He is one of the leaders in the philosophy of, of being vegan, um, and so I wanted to read this book, which is his latest one. So I'm going to read this book, share it with you on next Monday's show, Why Vegan Eating Ethically by Peter Singer. The book of the week for this last week that I'll talk about Tonight is The Great Leveler by Walter Scheidel. The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. And uh, this is a very dense and intense book uh, and covering a topic that I've been very interested in. I know a lot of people, of course, care about inequality when we look at wealth inequality, but I uh, especially want to get more into it because I want to try to understand, well, what can we do to change that? I think it's one of the biggest issues we have in the world today and the world has faced throughout history, and the book talks about that, uh, is inequality and how so many people can have so much and too much and others don't have enough. And so I wanted to further my own study on that and wanted to read this book. And in some ways, this book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age, to the 21st century is a bit pessimistic, which I'll get into. Um, but first, if we just look at inequality, why um, I think it's something important, of course, again, important throughout history. But currently, uh, the world's richest 26 people, 
own as much as the poorest 50% of the world. So 26 people own as much as 3.8 billion people. 26 people own as much as 3.8 billion people. This was from, um, I think, Oxfam in 2019. So obviously, I think most people would agree that this does not make sense and is not right, and that there definitely shouldn't be people that have so much while many others don't have enough. They're not even surviving or barely surviving. So this is definitely an issue for the world to look at. Now, in this book, Walter Scheidel, he's a a historian, um, and so he looks at what has happened, the history of inequality. And so to begin with, for there to really be any large degree of wealth inequality, there needs to be enough for there even to be some people that have more than others or for the extremes to happen. So really until we had agriculture and agrarian lifestyle and things started to change where we could have a surplus, we didn't have real extreme inequality because it just was not possible. Uh, So we see this is in some ways relatively new in human history, but we're still talking about thousands of years. And so he measures this or looks at inequality throughout history. And his central thesis is that inequality, whenever there is enough for there to be inequality, tends to grow, become stronger. The wealth becomes more concentrated at the top until something extreme happens. That's the great leveler that brings it back to some kind of more equilibrium or less extreme inequality. But then again, it becomes unequal. So he shares what he calls are the four horsemen of uh, leveling, which are the four different ways that um, inequality has been shaken up throughout history. And again, the name of the book is The Great Leveler by Walter Scheidel. So the four horsemen he talks about are mass mobilization warfare. That's the first one. So especially he focuses on the two world wars that really were huge in impacting inequality and creating uh, what he calls the Great Compression. So we talk about the Great Depression or the Great Recession more recently. But he talks about the Great Compression, meaning that uh, wealth inequality was compressed because of the world wars and in the aftermath. So in the, the early to mid 19th century or 20th century, excuse me, 1900s, we see that happening. So mass mobilization warfare is the first one. Um, the second one is transformative revolutions. And so these are extreme revolutions, especially he focuses on things like communism uh, in China, Mao's China and the USSR. This type of extreme transformative revolutions, which he also says, unless they had the threat or actual violence were not likely or did not really create huge changes in wealth inequality. So again, he focuses on all of these have to be essentially violent for there to have been a big change. So those are the first two. The second or the third one is state collapse of the four horsemen. So state collapse is essentially things like when the Roman Empire ended. So actual endings of an empire. That's the third one. And the last one, and it's interesting, so this book came out in 2017, but the fourth one he talks about is catastrophic plagues, Um, so pandemics. And so currently we're in the coronavirus pandemic, but here he was talking about, especially the pandemics, things like the plague in the um, 13th, 14th, 15th century 
around that time, which also had a huge impact in leveling, thus the title, The Great Leveler, mass inequality. But as he puts it, all of these different ways of creating more equality were very violent and extreme. Mass war, transformative revolutions that had violence in them, complete state collapse, uh, and catastrophic plagues. And so uh, in that way, it's disheartening. He, He doesn't say it's impossible. Of course, he says we can't predict the future. But even at the end of the book, uh, the last sentences are, all of us who prize greater economic equality would do well to remember that with the rarest of exceptions, it was only ever brought forth in sorrow. Be careful what you wish for. Now, I understand in his uh, exploration of history where he has come to that, or he makes that point that it seems that it's always been through violence, but I, I won't stop wishing for more equality or for the ends of extreme inequality. And I have some hope. Now, of course, it might appear that that hope is just some false hope and false optimism, but I do think it's possible. And of course, we can create new ways of creating inequality or reducing inequality, I should say. Uh, and that's something that I would still hold out hope for, and I might touch on that at the end. But it's a very interesting exploration of the history. And in a way, it does make sense that when people have the possibility of accumulating more wealth, they do. That throughout history, we've seen this, that whenever people had that opportunity, they accumulate more wealth. And very often this creates a type of runaway type of a thing where when you have more wealth, you have more power, more control, you can affect things in a way that makes you have more wealth. Especially very often we see that wealth and power were very much linked, that those who were wealthy had power. And also when you had wealth, um, uh, you know, you were either in government or you can influence those in government, something we still see even in the United States today. And so it allowed for people to maintain their wealth and to even add to it. And again, we still see that happening in today's world. It should be noted that the United States is one of the leaders and leaders in a bad thing when it comes to wealth inequality, that we're doing very bad in this. I shouldn't say leader sounds like it's good. It's something very bad. So we have a a lot of issues when it comes to wealth inequality. So it it does make sense when we look at from a psychological and societal perspective that when people have more and have power, they tend to want to keep it and they tend not to want to give that up. And so I think that's what does make sense throughout history. We have seen that. And that's why I've talked before uh, on recent shows, especially about the problems with power, or at least we have to be aware that power is essentially a corrupting type of a concept, that when people get more power, it tends to corrupt them. They tend to do not good things and usually worse things with that power. So that's something Uh, to be aware of. And so when people even have too much economic power, they usually tend to do things that are selfish and for themselves and not for others. And and he also throughout the book talks about, well, what about uh, a whole section is about peaceful ways of reducing inequality. And what he expresses is that when we look at these more peaceful attempts at reducing inequality, they tend to do not very much. They tend not to reduce inequality either at all or if it is, it's a very quick change, but not a strong change. And so essentially that's the central thesis. That is, if it's not a violent 
an extreme type of an event, then it's not going to lead to changes in inequality. And when we're talking extremes, we mean, you know, tens, twenties of millions of people dying in, in the world wars or in these plagues. Sometimes uh, a huge portion of a whole country or region was killed by the plagues. So that's what he's talking about. And I can understand it from the historic perspective. I also think, and as he talks about the world is changing, he shares how warfare has changed over time and soon might even be more by robots and even um, ways that enhance the human body that might be involved in warfare and other aspects of life. So, so much, of course, will change in ways that we can't even predict. And he does touch on that. But my sense overall from what he shares is a fairly pessimistic view that unless um, something violent happens, what he talks about is that these four horsemen, the mass mobilization warfare, transformative revolution, state collapse, and catastrophic plagues, they're less likely to happen. And so we might say, well, the coronavirus is happening now, but the effect it's having, as much as it's been huge, obviously we're all still feeling the effects. It's hard to compare that to, let's say, 100 million people dying. And hopefully, obviously, we won't even get close to those kinds of numbers. So in a way, he's arguing that if it's less likely for any of these four horsemen that tend to bring about leveling to occur, then maybe we won't be able to reduce inequality. And he shares some ideas that people have, including Thomas Piketty, whose book I read earlier this year, uh, Capital and Ideology. And he shares that all these proposals that are being made won't likely have a big effect on reducing inequality. So in that way, it was pessimistic, but potentially realistic. As I said, I want to understand inequality more, how it is created, the history of it, also trying to understand how we can change it. And I do have hope that things can change. I do think, think it is different, difficult because the people that do have the power tend not to want to give it up in whatever realm that might be, including the financial power and the financial uh, assets. But I do think that we are also entering, always is the case, new eras where new things are possible with technology, with the interconnectedness. Of course, we've been interconnected for a while, but it's becoming stronger, the interconnection between uh, human beings around the globe. And we also face different types of existential threats that we haven't faced before. I think even this pandemic, yes, it's, it's different. Uh, uh, there have been pandemics in the past but we're in a different stage where people can travel, for example, and we are more interconnected. So I do have some hope that the interconnectedness that we have as uh, human beings on earth can affect what we can do and that there will be peaceful ways. I think that it's not just going to happen by changing laws. As is usually the case, we have to change the laws and also change people, change the hearts of men and women, so to speak, in that they will at some level be more okay with reducing the inequality, uh, which might seem, well, why would the people who have want to give the, to those who have not or who have less? But I do think that this is possible and we can achieve that or at least approach that. Because if we just try to force people to create uh, more equality, very often that backfires. Even right now when we measure inequality, Usually we think that we're underestimating the inequality because the very wealthy are usually good at hiding their money in some degrees in offshore accounts, in you know non-taxable type of incomes that they might have. And so usually we think that it's probably an underestimate. And so if we try to force people to create 
more equality in, in when it comes to the economic inequality becoming less, uh, I think the force is not going to be enough. There's going to have to be some level of changing the way people look at these things. I, I think, you know, he talked about how it's not clear if inequality leads to violence in, in some ways. He says, you know, there's some uh, evidence for it, but it's not clear. And he says that would take a whole other book. Uh, but I do think there is some evidence showing that when we have extreme inequality, people tend to not be happy. And it does does contribute to even lack of economic growth. We don't grow as well when there's more inequality. So uh, I, I think there is some hope in that if we recognize the interconnectedness and recognize the connection between us, not just in a, uh, we affect each other, but we are similar, more the same, that hopefully over time we will find more peaceful ways to reduce extreme economic inequality like we have now. Uh, but this was a sobering look and a sobering book at the theme of economic inequality throughout history and trying to understand what has led to it changing. And unfortunately, usually when it's reduced, it tends to grow again. But I am hopeful for movement towards less uh, inequality in nonviolent ways. And we'll see what, what the future holds with that. But let's take our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned uh, just a couple hours ago, I was able to be part of a panel that was hosted by the Iranian student group at UCLA. And it was about mental health. And I thought there were some important themes that came up. So I wanted to actually further the discussion on that and in some ways connect it to the book I just talked about, The Great Leveler, looking at inequality. Uh, and I think one of the ways that we can, in a nonviolent way, reduce inequality is to, to see the similarities or feel connected to one another, the interconnectedness. Of course, there's a way that we get practically affected by each other. Uh, you know, we can look at the world or humanity as a human uh, body. But of course, if we also care about one another, we'll care that others are suffering, which might sound like a long cry from where we are right now, but I do think that we can get there. And so one of the topics that came up was related to prejudice, uh, discrimination within the Iranian community uh, and in general. And so this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. If you've listened to my show, you've heard me talk about this topic very often. But I thought it was a, another chance to talk about this very important issue. Uh, you know, as human beings, we are very good at differentiating. In a way, we can see it as a strength. We have to differentiate to survive. You have to know what is good as far as healthy for you, not healthy for you, safe, unsafe, friend, foe, all these types of distinctions are very important just to survive. Not just about people, but of everything. We make distinctions. And so in some ways, you know, people will say, you know, oh, look, racism is something we teach children, which is definitely true. 100% the ways that it plays out is something that we teach. But we can also see that innately we make distinctions between, you know, quote unquote, in-group and out-group. Even babies, infants can have a preference for people who look like them. And we can understand this, that in a survival type of mechanism, it would make sense to go towards people who look more like you. They're more likely to be 
your family, more likely to be part of your tribe or your group, that's more likely to be safe than something different. So there is some ways that it's innate even to notice difference. But now the ways it manifests in the world is a huge exaggeration or extrapolation of some feelings of differences that we might have. So to think that, okay, because of what I just shared, that a baby might have some way of making a distinction and prefer people like themselves, well, then racism and these prejudices are inevitable. Uh, No, and definitely not to the degree that we see. So we definitely don't want to prescribe to some notion that we have to dislike people that are different from us for multiple reasons, including what different means can change. And that's very important. Thankfully, uh, what we consider an in-group and out-group can change based on our experiences and based on especially interacting with members of that group and also based on circumstances. Uh, You know, the United States, we have all this tension and strife, but if another world war broke out, all of a sudden I'm sure all Americans would become united with each other and feel like we're all American. We identify more with our American side rather than, let's say, race, if that was something that was dividing people before. So we know that we can overcome discrimination or we can overcome prejudice in different ways. So one of the questions was about what can we do to tackle the issue of of race and racism? And some of what I might share, you've probably heard before, not just from me, but from others. But the first step is we do have to look at ourselves one of those cliche statements, but that actually has a lot of value. So very often we hear about racism, it's about racism in America. Very important topic. And of course, it's not that we don't get to that. But first you have to look at racism within yourself, the American or the person, whoever you are, and what you yourself are bringing to the table. Because, uh, you know, the idea, and you've heard this before, that everyone is racist is true. Or if we really take it in a different way, we all have different types of prejudices that we harbor. Everyone um, has uh, some beliefs or ideas about people that you might not even be aware of, at least at an unconscious level, but possibly even consciously, you might harbor different types of feelings to different types of groups. And they have tests that can help measure this, things like the implicit association test. I won't get into the details, but basically it can show you how much you associate, let's say, good with a certain group and bad with a certain group. And if we see differences in your speeds and reacting to those things, it gives us a sense that you might feel differently about those groups. So we know we have these, and so we have to accept that, acknowledge that. Um, You know, I don't mean to pick on any specific politician, but in the debate last week, Donald Trump said, I'm the least racist person in the room, um, which to me is a a funny statement for anyone to make because it it lacks the self-awareness of what it means to be racist or what it means to actually harbor those kinds of thoughts or beliefs, because we all have them. We all can can have something like that. And to make a statement about being more or less racist about than someone else is a kind of weird statement. And really, we should be just trying to make ourselves as less racist as we can be, work on ourselves in that way, rather than just focusing on comparison. Because even if you found someone more racist than you and said, oh, then I'm good, well, that's that doesn't mean you are... Uh, in a good place or that you can't be better than whatever it is you are. So comparing, as is usually a case, is not really going to be helpful. You really want to uh, compare yourself to yourself and continue to improve and decrease the types of ways that you judge others in different ways. So first you have to be aware before we can tackle any problem, any issue. The first step is awareness and understanding and knowing the problem. And that's actually where the denial of I'm not racist at all gets in the way. 
because if I can't even accept that I could have some racist thoughts or beliefs, then I'm not even going to be able to look at what's actually there. Uh, you know, don't give me an x-ray. I have no broken bones in my body. Well, if you have a broken bone, we won't know and the suffering uh, will just continue and the pain will get worse. So first we have to have that openness. And one of the reasons why we're so quick to judge others for being racist or prejudiced in different ways, I believe is a projection of recognizing we have some of those things within ourselves. So when we see something within ourselves, or if we see it on the outside that we might have within ourselves, we can be very quick to attack that in others in a way to feel better about ourselves. So if you're someone who's cheap, you might notice people who are cheap and make a big deal about, look at those cheap, cheap people. If you're someone who lies and you see lying, you might emphasize that to talk about, look at those people and deflect from yourself. So I think some of what we see in uh, today's world, especially with social media, where people are very quick to point the finger. Of course, awareness is important. It's important to call people out uh, in, in appropriate ways. But I think one of the reasons why it can be so exaggerated at times is that people are acknowledging or they don't want to actually acknowledge the racism within themselves. And so they are talking about other people's racism. Look at how racist he is or she is and others. So we want to be aware of that and turn first to ourselves and recognize what's there. And to help reduce the racism within yourself, well, it's really t hard in today's day and age to interact with people in a face-to-face, in-person type of a way, but that's one of the best ways to reduce the stigma. Uh, what you believe about other people probably is not true, or almost definitely is not true, especially when it comes to certain groups, and especially when you think they are less than you or worse than you in some way. And bringing this back to the Iranian population and culture, we see this in all cultures, but speaking myself as an Iranian in today's uh, event that I, I was speaking as part of a panel earlier was with the Iranians, we put a lot of emphasis on hierarchy and on status. It, it's such a big part of our actual life um, success in different ways comes from this historically, less now. Who you knew, who your sons and daughters could marry, which circles you could be in, what type of business connections you could make, what type of uh, life expectancy in a way you can have, not just in longevity, but in the way you would live your life. So we were very focused and obsessed with status. And this also came in the conversation about mental health that we want to deny that we have mental health problems or in our issues in our family or that anyone sees a therapist or a psychiatrist because that's going to make us look worse. People won't marry into our family. So, oh, no, we don't have any problems. We're all good. Everyone's healthy. Um, even physical ailments are uh, denied or uh, hidden in some ways. Uh, I might soon have some people uh, on the show from uh, an organization that deal with individuals with some uh, disability in the Iranian community. I'll, I'll share the details later when I have them on the show. But we were talking about this, about how much Iranians tend to even hide physical disabilities because they think it's going to look bad on the family, that people uh, won't marry into our family because they think our genes are like weak or have some problem. Same thing with the mental illness. And, and you see people literally hiding family members, which is heartbreaking on multiple levels. Of course, first for that individual being hidden, but also uh, for the whole family and even just society at large, we see this happen. So it's heartbreaking that we hide because we think we have to somehow show 
uh, we are better than by not having any type of vulnerability or what we consider a weakness or a problem. We hide all of those things to try to be superior. And this is what we're, we're talking about when we look at things like race and racism and prejudice. Very often it's about feeling superior, which is why you hear that term white superiority, which has a long history thrown into that conversation because it's a way of saying I'm better than other people talking down. And if we look at the Iranian community, we are very good at this. Um, you know, if you live in Tehran, you, you look down at the people who live in the other cities or in villages. If you are Iranian, you might look down on people who are Afghan, but Iranian, or who are a different religion than you. So we're very much obsessed with uh, this type of hierarchy of putting people above and below and making sure, of course, we put ourselves above other people. And that's one of the main drivers of this discrimination, that let's just keep making sure we put others down so that I can feel good. Okay, then it's Iranians versus Arabs. Okay, we're better than them, of course, because they do X, Y, and Z thing, which is all, you know, unfortunate and very much not true, but that's a way that we um, try to make ourselves feel good. So what's interesting is that when we bring this all back, it can come from the sense of inferiority that we also have. So earlier I was talking about, uh, you know, the racism that we can all have that we project, but also what we see happening when we try to put ourselves above others, and the easiest way to put yourself above others is to put others down, is because it's coming from the sense of weakness or inferiority in ourselves. We all can feel weak in different ways. We have experiences of feeling weak, uh, Adler talked about, you know, this inferiority complex we all can have as kids feeling weak. So we try to defend against that by putting others down. Even they've done research where they have people take a type of a test. Uh, I don't remember the details, but essentially the theme of it was you would take a test and then you'd be told you did bad in a way make you feel bad about yourself. So that brings you down. And then now you get to evaluate someone else. Like you'd read an essay of someone anonymous, but people rated the essays lower after they'd gotten negative feedback versus positive feedback, which means that if I've been told I'm not so good or if I feel that or I connect to that part of myself that doesn't feel so good, I'm going to want to tell someone else they're bad to kind of momentarily put them down to make myself feel good. So anytime you see yourself calling out a group as worse than you, as dirty, as this or whatever it might be, it's not the group that's the problem. It's you that is the problem. Or it's not the group that is the problem, but you're connecting to or expressing something within yourself that feels or fears being inferior that makes you want to put that group down. Oh, we are better than the this. And, you know, Iranians love to do stuff like that. We're, oh, those people are, they do that. But our family is this way. Or look at those so-and-sos and look at us to make ourselves feel better. All of that is a reflection of a fear of weakness within ourselves. And I say fear because the reality is that as human beings, we are in that sense equal as having equal value and equal rights, but we have this fear of being less. And interestingly, because of the ways that we promote trying to be perfect, trying to show we have no weaknesses, well, if we all pretend like we have no weaknesses, but if I'm in touch with myself, I know I do have them myself, well, how could I not feel bad about myself? Because I'm comparing myself to some idealized standard that we're all pretending to have. Uh, an analogy I sometimes use is imagine if, uh, you know, people wanted to say they don't sleep. So everyone pretends like they've never slept before. Oh, I have so much energy. I never, I never sleep zero hours. Yeah. Last night at four in the morning, I was doing this and at six, I did this and we'd all be lying to each other about never sleeping 
to try to say how strong and powerful we were. And people do this to a minor degree, minimizing how much they sleep. But let's say to the extreme. The truth is then you would know, oh, I was sleeping last night and I just told that guy that I wasn't and he stayed up the whole night, so I must be so weak. I, I, I'm not as strong as everyone, but I'm going to keep pretending like I am. So unfortunately, what we see is that because we're trying to live up to some fake standard that we're all setting together, we actually all feel weak as a result. But if we could create a realistic human standard, which means we have weaknesses, vulnerabilities, physical, mental vulnerabilities and weaknesses and issues, make mistakes, all those types of things, it actually would make it easier for us to love ourselves and to love others as well. So if we create a more realistic human standard of life in, in, in society at large, but even any society, Iranians, let's just say, since we're talking about them, if Iranians are more open and understanding of what it means to be human and allowing each other to be human, we actually will re reduce the amount of types of prejudice and discrimination that we have towards others. Now let's go to a commercial break and I'll delve maybe a little bit deeper on this topic. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So before the break, I was talking about race and racism, and especially in the Iranian community. I want to continue that discussion. So as I, I shared, when we um, judge a group, really what we should be recognizing, even though in the moment it can feel really good, I'm not going to lie, when people put others down, you've probably experienced this, it can feel good. And that's something we have to be aware of, that it feels good to put others down, not because it is good, but a lot of unhealthy things can feel good in the moment. And so when we're putting another group down, it's not that they are bad, it's somehow connecting to something bad in us that wants to put them down. So I think that's very important to, to remember. Now, I was talking about the Iranian community, and I think what's important to recognize is when I say all this, it doesn't mean we have to give up your culture, give up who you are, or give up being Iranian, or that you can't even be proud to be Iranian. But it is a slippery slope and something very delicate. So uh, you can love the Iranian culture, Iranian uh, music. We just lost one of the, the, the biggest members of the Iranian musical community in, in Mr. Shajarian just a couple of weeks ago. Um, you can love all of those things and be very connected and feel something good. What you have to be very careful about is that making that connection make you think it makes you better than others. And that's what tends to happen. So the analogy I use for this of connecting to our past and connecting to our heritage, it's kind of like if you have a baby. Now, um, if someone, anyone who's a parent, when you have a baby, you love your baby and you should. You should be, you fall in love in a way with your baby and you will look at it in a way so beautiful and so good, but hopefully even amidst loving your baby so much, you won't actually think your baby is better than another baby or that your baby, for example, uh, another baby should suffer for any reason just to make your baby a little bit more comfortable or that if there was two of something, your baby should get both and some other baby should starve or not have. And usually that's, most people will have that reaction. They love their baby so much and they'll take care of their baby, but they won't really see it as better than others. And they'll still love all the other babies. Actually, I think Eric Fromm said that really to um, love your child, you must love all children, to genuinely love your child. So you can look at your child and feel very much in love with your child, but it doesn't mean you see other children as less valuable 
than yours. And so I think we could try to have that same mindset with our past. So you look at your culture and you understand your culture and your heritage and your past, but it doesn't mean you look at it as better than start comparing. And that's hard not to do at times. I think you have to be conscious of it to nothing. Well, look at uh, our poets were better than the other poets and, or we created human rights or something like that. You know, these different ways that we um, try to uh, put ourselves above other people. And that's where I think it's a problem. Again, I think this comes from wanting to feel better about ourselves. If I don't feel that good about me, but if I can say I'm Iranian and I come from this great heritage and culture, there's something within me that still makes me greater than others. And I even see this during the commercial break. Um, someone was asking about soccer. Pedram was asking about uh Manchester United and Barcelona, and I feel it. I, I'm still a Messi fan and a Barcelona fan this weekend. They had a loss to Real Madrid, and I was feeling kind of down, feeling low. And you can feel this connection we have even to, let's say, sports teams, where we can feel better about ourselves by connecting to their greatness. And of course, when they lose, that can make us feel low about ourselves as well. So in a way, we're all seeking to feel a little bit stronger and greater, and we connect to different things. And one of the things we can do is try to connect to our heritage. Oh, I come from a line of blah, blah, blah. And I think it's funny because when people talk about past lives or being descendants, somehow everyone is a descendant of Cleopatra or Alexander the Great or some royalty. They always have to have that, which I think, again, is this way of wanting to be something great. Whatever you see doesn't matter. I come from. And this is what we've seen throughout humanity and history, but even still, we look at different groups. Oh, they come from the line of so-and-so, so they get treated with respect and love and everyone has to worship them or whatever it might be. Or they come from this level, they're low, we look down on them. And so we still feel like this is the way we get value. And what I really think is every life has equal value. And then more important than that, you are going to be evaluated in that sense by what you do. I don't care if you come from a line of kings and queens, let, show me what you do, and especially what you do as far as the good that you do and the good that you do for others. And still, even if you don't do good for others, I'm not going to treat you with disrespect, but that's what we should value ourselves in. Not that, oh, did you know your great-great-grandfather was the king of such-and-such such place? Well, what difference does that make based on what you actually do with your life? So we have to quit seeking for ways to bring ourselves up by either putting people down or connecting with something that makes us feel that we are inherently better because of that. That somehow because, okay, let's say Cyrus the Great created human rights. Does that mean you treat people with more respect than others or that you're valuing everyone's human rights? That's based on what you do, not based on what has happened that now you can carry that forward. And it's interesting today I was talking about um, wealth inequality, and this in a way relates to that. When we talk about wealth inequality, uh, one factor that definitely plays a big part is the generational passing of wealth that allows for wealth to accumulate. And in a way, we have done this with morality or human value. We think that, well, if I come from these generations of great people, whatever that means, I somehow already have more wealth as a human being. But that's not the case. Every human being should be judged and evaluated by their own life. And of course, we have to be aware not to judge them because we realize we don't know their capabilities, what they've been through, what's going on. And so because of that, we have to just accept everyone and not try to judge and put people above and below one another.
So when we look at our past, it's okay to love your, uh, you know, history, to love the culture that you are in, but be very careful not to put your culture above others. Just like you have your baby, you love your baby, but if you see another baby, you love that one too. And also you understand that the parents of that baby are going to love their baby. So when you talk to someone about their culture, say, here are some of the great poets from my culture. Please share with me about your culture. I want to learn about it, understand about your culture. And I can understand you love your culture just like I might love my own. And that can be okay. And we can each do that and also learn from each other, share with each other and, and, and express what we like about it and, and learn from each other in that way. But the putting each other above and below is the problem. So this is something we have to be very aware of. In a way, it does take some effort. I mentioned before that as babies, we tend to notice the differences. In our default, you can very easily uh, put yourself above and below, judge people. In a default way, we tend to do that. It does take some effort to overcome that. Not that we actively have to overcome that every moment, but let's say to reduce your prejudice to a certain group, one of the best ways you can do that is to have meaningful connections and conversations with that group. Go talk to them for a while. Learn about their wants, what they experienced in their life, the pains they've experienced. And you'll see, as is virtually always the case, that you'll see much more in common with you and them or your quote-unquote group and their group than you thought you did. Uh, for me, it's interesting as a therapist, I've come to the realization that every human being, it's really my perspective, is unique. Every person is a unique combination of characteristics, uh, you know, even of DNA or however you want to look at it, but there's something unique and special about every human being. But at the same time, every human being shares so much with one another. There's a shared humanity that is also there. So it can seem paradoxical, but when I um, am talking to someone, interacting with someone, I feel that I'm interacting with someone unique, someone that's only this person, while at the same time recognizing this person's a human being and there's so much they share with me and everyone else as well. And as I mentioned, it at times can take some effort to remind ourselves of this because we notice differences. It makes sense to notice differences in a way it's related to our survival. If you were, you know, in some kind of quintessential hunter-gatherer type of a way, you would always go to these bushes and have these berries. Now, if you go to a different type of a bush and the berries look different, you should notice that the berries look different because maybe these ones are not healthy for you or not okay. So that difference should make you feel something. And this is why actually we do feel something with difference, with change. It makes sense. It's our brain, body's way of protecting ourselves. We shouldn't just say, oh, these are new berries, start eating them. They might be poisonous or they might hurt you in some way that we shouldn't just accept that they are going to be safe and okay for, for us. And so this is why when something is new or different, it feels a little threatening. I've never interacted with people from that group. Even worse, not only have I not interacted with them, I've only seen things in the media, news and reports that have shown maybe them to be a certain way. So of course, I'm going to have a feeling about that group. And we can get that, that something new is going to almost always seem like a threat or at least a little bit scary. You're going to be apprehensive, right? You go somewhere new, it takes a while to get familiar. It's understandable. You're trying a new food, even the way you taste it, you're like thinking, you're cautious. 
if it's something you've eaten before, you're much more comfortable. You're seeing someone you know, you can give them a hug or whatever your relationship is. Let's say pre-corona, go give them a hug comfortably. Someone you just met, you might shake hands or you might just say hello because they're new to you. And so we also can be on a journey of trying to make less things new to us as far as interacting with people from different groups. You think people from LGBTQ are so different from you. They're not. And obviously some people that are listening are members of that group. Go interact with people with that group, a different race, ethnicity, whatever it might be. We can reduce the amount of that fear or that anxiety that comes with something being new or different, which is understandable and part of being human, but it does take some effort. Our comfort zone is to always stay in doing the same thing, to always stay in doing things that are comfortable, to stay within your group. And it's understandable. You're wanting to be around people that you feel like look like you, understand you, and you maybe can't constantly be around people that aren't, let's say, comfortable for you. So we have to find a balance as much as I always try to push people to get out of their comfort zones. I understand that there's only so much new that we can handle in a given time. You take some steps, you need to go back to your secure base, just like attachment theory would have us understand. You go out, you come back, you go out, you come back. The good news is the more you go out, the less of the world will feel like a scary place. That base will expand. Now that you've interacted with people from a certain group that you never had before, now when you're around those individuals, they're friendly and, and okay for you too. So the base will expand. Less things will feel like they're not uh, strange or they're not, uh, you know, less things will feel scary to you, but it takes some time and takes some effort. But first we have to recognize I'm no better or worse than anyone. My group is no better or worse than anyone. And so because of that, I want to understand everyone get in touch with everyone. I'm not better than them. I'm not worse. Iranians, we're not better than other people. We're not worse than other people. We are people that were from a certain region and might have certain uh, cultural practices and things that we've done, but we are not different or as far as we're not better or worse than anyone else. We are equal to them. Let's understand and learn about our equal partners in this world. Let's try to love one another. And the only way we can love one another is first to accept we are equal and that I want to get to know you and that I won't see you as a threat because I know that we're all human beings. It sounds cheesy and cliche, but having this actual realization could make us have the effort or take the effort to interact with others, to see that, you know what? I'm a human being, you're a human being. That's the most important thing. Our differences might seem like big differences, but they're probably differences that you and I have made to be different. And first and foremost, love yourself and then love all of humanity. That's the end of tonight's show. Big thank you, as always, to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.